kind of a serious message this morning as we return to the second half of something we began last week. We're taking up the topic of persecution, and that is uh, definitely a serious topic indeed. There's, uh, it's obvious in our culture, our society, that there is a growing hostility to the Christian gospel and to those who both believe it and preach it. It's now a very much a common experience that the gospel in the secular universities and, and colleges of our nation is mocked and that those who believe it are often intimidated into silence by professors and even classmates. It's also rather apparent in our culture that biblical morality is rapidly becoming characterized as hate speech, particularly by those who have their hands on the various levers of power within our nation. And it's not just that, but immorality is now becoming enshrined as public policy, both by our courts and our legislatures. So these are very, very difficult times. It is quite probable that in our lifetime that it will no longer be acceptable to believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. It will be unacceptable to express that publicly and eventually I'm afraid it may become unacceptable to even believe it privately. If this trajectory does not change, gracious and providential intervention of our God, then it is likely that we will feel the fires of persecution. And should that happen, it's going to put us good company, because that has been the experience of many, many Christians who have gone before us for the last 2,000 years. We have lived in what I think is likely a bubble in history, and that bubble has popped During the first three centuries of the church, Christians were actively persecuted. Initially, that persecution, as as detailed for us in the book of Acts in the first 30 years of the church, immediately following its birth at Pentecost, was primarily Jewish persecution. The Roman government at that time pretty much considered Christianity to be an offshoot, a sect of Judaism. And thus they viewed the the Jewish persecution of, of Christians to be something that was basically an inconsequential argument among people who held essentially the same religious viewpoint. We can see that illustrated for us in Acts chapter 25. Don't turn there. I've got it for you here. Acts 25, verses 18 and 19. 
where the Roman governor Festus is, is speaking to King Agrippa. And it says, when the Jewish accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him. He's talking about Paul. Not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. So the Roman authorities thought that this was basically just an inter-family argument about some fine points of the Jewish religion. And so they weren't particularly concerned about it. But beginning in A.D. 66, with the Jewish rebellion against Rome, Rome began to see Judaism and what they still considered to be just an offshoot of Judaism to be a very dangerous and seditious group. And thus the full weight of the Roman Empire began to press down upon those early believers. Over the next 250 years, the political government of that day, the Roman Empire, with all of its power and all of its, its might, pressed down on Christians in a series of, of ten waves. Ten waves of persecution. These waves initially were regional in in terms of their, of their reach. That is, that it would be one Roman Empire or another. But, but later, a couple of centuries into the matter, the, the persecution began to become more widespread until eventually it was empire-wide. No place to run. No place to get away. It became so significant, so severe under the the final persecution of the Emperor Diocletian where they were gathering and burning copies of the Scriptures and executing those who would not offer a pinch of incense to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord, that the church and many of its leaders uh, were killed. And in the providential intervention of God, this, this... Terrible, terrible persecution was brought to an end. In 313, the Emperor Constantine signed what is known as the Edict of Milan. And with the signing of the Edict of Milan, Christianity was granted a legal status. It was uh, freed from persecution. And interestingly, for the next about 1,200 years, it enjoyed relative peace. Regional persecutions began to spring up again around the time of the Reformation. And for about 150 years, the believers were persecuted in various regional areas of Europe. But all of that ended as well in 1648 with the signing of a series of of treaties that have become collectively known as the Peace of Westphalia. So 1648 historians mark as sort of end of persecution. And it wasn't really until the end of World War II that persecution of Christians around the world began again in earnest. And it has been accelerating over this last lifetime. 
I'm not telling you anything you know here, but, but the primary countries that, that are most severe in their persecution of believers happen to be those countries that fall within what is known as the 1040 window. And the very place where, by God's grace, we would like to see the gospel take root and grow. But they are most hostile. They are most dangerous. And it is there that Christians are in the fewest number. Christian mission in the 1040 window is a very dangerous and a very difficult endeavor. If you've not already, open your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 10. And I want to pick this text back up beginning in verse 16. And last week as we worked our way through verses 16 through 25, we attempted to to understand this section in its original context as it was first spoken to the twelve disciples. They were announcing, that's better, they were announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were evidencing kingdom power by their authority over death, disease, and demons. But we noted last week that something very dramatic happens here in verse 16. That as Jesus is addressing them and preparing them to to head out on their Galilean preaching tour... He begins to to offer them a prophecy, really, to speak about events that will occur in the future. Not those things that they will encounter in their preaching tour, for indeed, during their preaching tour, there was little persecution involved. Let me read the text. Jesus says, Behold, pay attention, listen up. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? This is a prophecy. 
This is Jesus acting in his capacity as a prophet of God, predicting the future course of events for his disciples, in particular for the twelve. The fulfillment of this prophecy, or at least the partial fulfillment of this prophecy, for these twelve occurs in the book of Acts. As you read through the book of Acts, you you would see the, the circumstances coming to pass that Jesus has spoken about here, yet beyond that, as we noted last time. It also looks ahead to a, to a future day with the return of the Son of Man, verse 23. And thus we concluded last time that it, that it looks forward and, and speaks to that future time of persecution of Jewish evangelists during the Great Tribulation. But it also has application. And that's what I want to look at this morning. It has application for you and I. It has historical fulfillment in the book of Acts. It will have future fulfillment during the time of the tribulation. But it has application for you and I who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, just listen. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when tribulation and persecution come. So what I want to do this morning as we go through these verses again, is not so much talk about what they meant in their original context, although we will do a little more of that. But I want to draw from them now some principles. I want to apply the text. So there are six of them, I think, here. At least six for us this morning. Six important principles. Six important principles to help prepare us for future persecution. It begins here in verse 16 with the first principle, and it's simply this, ready yourself for trouble. The first principle is to ready yourself for trouble. That is, be prepared. Be prepared. Jesus says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be Shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. It's an expression that's, that at first glance is a little difficult for us to get our arms around. The serpent, the snake, is, is known for uh, when it senses danger of withdrawing or retreating. Snakes have an amazing sense of, of self-preservation. And so they will pull back, they will will withdraw when they sense they are in danger. And so the ancient world, observing that reality about snakes, came to to understand that, that particular characteristic, that instinct of a snake as being what they would consider shrewdness or prudence. They were prudent. They didn't rush in when they sensed danger. 
And Jesus uses this reality here to, to talk to his disciples and by application to us as, as we see persecution arising, that we're to be prepared for it and to we're to pull back from it. He talks about the need to be careful when the situation is, is dangerous, not to rush headlong into trouble, be shrewd as a serpent. But he also balances it here, and he says, be as innocent as doves. Now, doves are an interesting uh, bird. They're a, they're a non-predatory bird. They're a, they're a bird that's, that's gentle. They're a bird that's vulnerable. And so they became, in, in antiquity, uh, identified with the, ish, with the idea of innocence. Innocence. So you have the prudence of the snake, and you have the vulnerability and innocence of the dove. And, and Jesus is putting these two ideas together. He's sort of creating a proverb of his own. He's, he's, he's giving us something to ponder think about. The Bible commentator D.A. Carson, speaking on this, he says, and I quote, innocence can become naivete unless combined with prudence. So innocence, he says, can, you can become naive if, there's, if there is too much innocence and not, not enough prudence in the cake batter. I'd like to add to it and say that a, that a person can become cynical if there is too much prudence and not enough innocence mixed in. So it's the, it's the dangers of being naive or being cynical that Jesus is really addressing here. And he's saying we need to keep these things in balance. We need to keep them in balance. And that's how we ready ourselves for trouble. Now the best way to, to grow in, in these virtues... Is to, is to recognize that you probably lean in one direction or the other. You probably lean towards the cynical or you lean towards the naive. And you want to be in balance. So recognizing that about yourself, to pray that the Spirit of God would, would help you gain a measure of balance in these things. And, and I would suggest even observing others who appear to have good balance and, and coming alongside them and, and learning from them in the process. But in order to be ready here, the first thing that Jesus says is, is that we need to be able to, to walk our Christian walk with a balance of prudence and innocence. Prudence and innocence. Second principle, realize Christ is the reason you are suffering. Realize that Christ is the reason you are suffering. If we suffer, when we suffer, it will be because of our identification with Jesus Christ. By the way, otherwise it's not persecution. If we suffer for any other reason, it's because of our own sin and stupidity, and in that case we deserve it. But when it comes to us because of our identification in Christ, then it is biblical suffering. You see it here in Verses 17 and 18, where he says, Beware of men, they'll hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. They'll even be brought before governors and kings. And here's the little, 
little clause that I want to point out to you. For my sake. It's for my sake that these things will happen to you. It is, it is because of our identification with Jesus Christ that these things will come upon us. Hey, listen. Followers of Jesus Christ, we are, we are the visible representation of Christ to the world. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Is that not true? And thus the world cannot see him and the world cannot get at him. But we are his visible representation here on earth. We are the body of Christ. And the world's hatred towards Jesus hasn't changed. If anything, it's intensified. The psalmist in Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage? Why do they they have such anger and hostility towards the messianic king? They can't get to him, but they can get to us. And so the history of the church has been that that the persecution has come because the hostile, unbelieving world is seeking really to get at Christ. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. Let me me show you this. Acts 9. Beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Saul, who after his conversion becomes Paul, after now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Now, Saul was on his way to Damascus in order to arrest Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus makes it very explicit here that in reality what Saul was doing was persecuting Christ himself. It's because we are united with Jesus that the persecution that, is, that would, they would love to, 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 to bring upon Christ, they bring upon us. Maybe this will cheer you up. It's not personal. This is business. They're after Christ. But they can't get him. So they're going to get you. Realize when hostility comes to you and because you are a Christian, it is is coming to you because you're a Christian and because they can't get to Christ. They hate you because of your identification with him. So if you want to avoid persecution, you can give up your identification with Jesus Christ. And historically, many have. 
But that's not the real answer, is it? It's not really an option. If Jesus is who he says he is, and and if he has done what the scriptures clearly say he has done, and he has changed you, then there is no other place to go. There's no place to go. We must rely on the Spirit for help, and that takes us to our third principle this morning. Rely on the Spirit for help. Rely on the Spirit for help. Ready yourself for trouble. Realize Christ is why you are suffering. Rely on the Spirit for help. Verses 19 and 20. When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in the hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now this, this is an amazing promise, and it is given directly to the twelve. Jesus is saying to them, do not worry, do not fret, do not prepare ahead of time as to what you will say when you are brought into these most awful situations, when you are, when you are brought into the synagogues and before the courts, when you are flogged, when you are brought before the highest Roman authorities and, and you are made to speak on my behalf. Don't worry. In the moment, the Spirit of God will be your advocate. He will give you the words that you need to speak. Again, we see an example of this in in Acts chapter 4. Acts 4. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. I mean, you've got to get a picture of this. This this is two fishermen. Two fishermen fishermen now standing before the highest authorities in the land. And Peter just waxes eloquent here about Christ, right? And in verse 11, the stone which was rejected by you, you religious authorities, the builders, but became the chief cornerstone. There's salvation in, in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and, the, and they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they're amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus and, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply That's pretty amazing. A politician with nothing to say. (laughs) The word of God stopped their mouths through a couple of fishermen. So this is a specific promise given to these 12 here who are going to be brought into these incredible situations. But by application, by application, that which was explicit to the twelve is, has, has something to say to us, too. It's been amply displayed throughout the Christian centuries by the martyrs that when called upon to, to speak in behalf of Christ, they have spoken. Frequently, they have spoken better than they could have known or prepared. I can remember when I was early in the Christian faith that sometimes I would think about what would it be like 
if I were arrested and, and brought before the authorities and they were to press me on my Christian faith, what, what would I say? And I used to plan these speeches in my mind. I don't, am I alone in this or has anyone else ever kind of done this? I sort of role-played it in my mind. Yeah, I'd say this and I'd say that. And, and then I came to realize that that was nothing but youthful bravado. The truth of the matter is, God forbid that were ever to happen, I have no idea what I'd say. I, I just pray that the Spirit of God would, would enable me to speak clearly and boldly for Jesus Christ. And I think that for the believer, that's our hope. We need to be walking in the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Word of God, which is the Spirit's raw material, as it were. And then trust that when we are ever in that situation... The Spirit will help us speak. Fourth principle. Resist the temptation to quit. Resist the temptation to quit. Verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. We talked about what a, what a terrible time is being prophesied here. The complete breakdown of, of the family relationship. The love that ought to naturally exist between parents and children and children and parents and, and siblings. hard to imagine. What would it be like to live in a, in, a, in a world in which your own children might be the source of turning you over to the authorities that would eventuate in your death? Or parents turning their own children over for arrest and torture and execution? There's a principle here, I think, The principle is that we need to endure. We must resist the the temptation to run away. The one who has endured to the end, he says, will be saved. Listen, until the Son of Man comes, until he returns to judge the world, life is going to be hard. The followers of Jesus Christ should not expect to be respected and valued members of a world that is in open hostility against its creator. There may be bubbles, periods of time. They may go on for centuries. But it is not the natural state of affairs. The natural state of affairs is is that the world system is opposed to Christ and and it's opposed to those who stand for Christ. And sometimes that hostility breaks out. And, and occasionally that hostility breaks out even to the point where it, it breaks down family relationships. The closest bonds of love and loyalty 
What Jesus is saying is is that in this perverse pressure cooker, the temptation to, to abandon Jesus Christ is very strong. Very, very strong. Yet it has to be resisted. The early church struggled mightily with what to do with those who had wilted under the persecutions. And then when there was an easing, wanted back in. Very, very difficult pastoral issue to deal with. Jesus says, don't give in. Don't give in. And he says something more to that. He says, the one who has endured to the end will be saved. Now that kind of brings us face to face with one of those illogical conundrums. huh? Brings us face to face with with this whole issue, this, this biblical tension between human responsibility, which in this case is, is to persevere in the Christian faith in, in the face of the most awful temptations and, and persecutions, and divine promise, God's commitment that he will not lose his children. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty. The Apostle Paul speaks of these twin realities himself in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, where he writes to the church at Colossae, he says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, yet now, excuse me, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That's all the divine sovereignty stuff. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard. That's the human responsibility side. Beloved, we have to endure We have to endure in the Christian faith. It is is not something that can be put on and taken off. We wear it when the times are good, right? And then hide it when the troubles come. No. We cannot. It's something, it's our identity, it's who we are. If it's real, it's real all the time in all the places. So we have to persevere. Listen, there are, there are lots of wonderful promises throughout the Scripture, right, about God hanging on to his children. Romans 8, you know, 35 to, to the end of the chapter 39, you know, what can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. And Paul lists all those things. Nothing can separate me. I love that section. You know, that is so encouraging. It's an anchor for my soul. But there's still these, these warning passages that are, that are a very stark reality that says, listen, I have a responsibility to hang on here. Maybe you can illustrate it this way. If I were to take my grandson and cross a busy street, 
I would reach down and get a hold of his hand, and I would, I would say to him, hold on to Grampy's hand and don't let go. Because there's a lot of cars coming here, and, and if you let go, you could get hit by a car and be injured. So I, we would, I'd hold his hand, he'd hold mine, right? And we'd, we'd walk across the street. Now, if he were to let go of my hand, would he get run over by a car? No. Because ultimately, his security depends not on his grip on my hand, but my grip on his. And thus it is with God. God is holding on to us. His grip is sure. He will never fail us. And yet God says to us, hold on tight. Hold on tight. Ready yourself for troubles. Realize Christ is why you are suffering. Rely on the Spirit for help. Resist the temptation to quit. Fifth, run away if you can. Run away if you can. Verse 23, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Whenever they persecute you in one place, run away. Run away. Hey, listen, there, there's a very simple principle here. There, there is no virtue in suffering and dying for Jesus Christ in and of itself. If we can escape, we should escape. This is the, this is the balancing statement to the, to the strong admonition just prior that we, that we have to persevere. We do. But we don't foolishly put ourselves in positions in which our faith is tested. There is no virtue in martyrdom unless God has sovereignly decreed you to be a martyr. Revelation 6, there's just a little clause. Verse 11. Speaking of the martyrs, the martyrs. They're crying out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are tribulation martyrs. Verse 10. There was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer And check this out. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had, would be completed also. They had been chosen by God to be martyred. If God chooses you to be a martyr, then God has chosen what is best. But we are not to seek it out. The early church, by the way, wrestled with this very point. In the fires of the persecution, some thought that the best thing to do was just go someplace where you're going to get yourself killed, speak out boldly for Christ, let him cut your head off, and be done with it. The answer is no. If it comes, it comes. Don't go looking for it. Run away. I think if you would spend some time in the book of Acts and, and sort of think through how the Apostle Paul conducted himself, 
you could gain a lot of wisdom in how to deal with authorities in the face of persecution. There's a time to speak boldly and there's a time to run away. So run. Run. Sixth. Recognize that you will be maligned. Recognize that you will be maligned. The disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he's like his teacher and the slave like his master. That is, you're not going to rise higher than your teacher or higher than your master. It would be perfect if you could just get to their level. And then Jesus applies this principle, this proverb as it were, and he says, listen, as they call the head of the house Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, how much more are they going to call the members of the house? If they call me the son of God, the son of Satan, then how much more are they going to call you who follow me? The hardness of of the religious authorities in Israel at that time had risen to the point where, where they had no answer for his miracles except to, to say that he did them by the power of the evil one. Chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. He is in league with Satan. This is what hardened unbelief will do. And Jesus says, listen, they say that of me. The perfect one. What are they going to say about you who follow me? So we should expect. We should expect that our message of sin and judgment and mercy in grace in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, is not going to be a popular message at all. It is going to be considered hateful. It is going to be considered ignorant. It's going to be considered stupid. It's going to be considered dangerous. And perhaps it will be considered seditious. And it is not a very big step from hating the message to hating the messenger. They call the master of the house Beelzebub. How much more... Will they malign those who are part of his household? Recognize this. You will be maligned. The last 2,000 years, beloved, have been an interesting ride. The followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, some have experienced periods of peace and And prosperity on this earth. Others have been hounded for their faith. Severely persecuted. When those periods of peace and prosperity vanish. What frequently happens is there is a great sifting that goes on among the church. Those that have attached themselves like barnacles. To the hull of Christianity begin to be scraped away. They say there is no way. I'm not going to suffer. I'm following Jesus because he makes me happy. 
Because he, he promises me a good life. He, I'm going to have well-behaved children. I'm going to have a good marriage. I'm going to, I'm going to be rich. I'm, life is going to be good. It's all going to work. And then the fire comes. And people say, I didn't sign up for that. I'm out of here. And the church is thinned. The church is thinned. Why would anybody want to follow Jesus if persecution is what's going to come? Do you ever think about that? I mean, it's hard for us because it's not been our reality. You think about the, the early centuries of the church. So, you're, you know, here's the deal. You've you got your coworker, right? So you're there working side by side in the, in the saddle shop. Hey, what did you do last night? Oh, I, I met together with some followers of the way. We read from the scriptures and we prayed and we sang and we shared a common meal. And then we ran. Because the police were coming. person looks at him and says why in the world would you do that why do I want to be part of that right why would I sign up for something that is going to bring nothing but trouble in this world my way there can only be one answer because it's true because it's true listen the gospel is not so much an imperative or a command as it is an indicative. That is, it is a statement of reality, and because it is a statement of reality, we are compelled to believe it. We are sinners, lost and separated from our Creator. God, in His love, sent forth His Son into this world, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus lived perfectly under God's rule and then willingly offered Himself as a substitutionary atonement, a sacrifice on that cross, in order to turn aside the wrath of God for His people. He was buried. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead and established him in his rule and authority over all creation, where right now he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on the behalf of his people, and he will return to judge the world, to put down his enemies, to establish his kingdom of peace and righteousness from one end of this earth to the other. My friends, that is the gospel. And in the face of that reality, we have no choice but to believe. To rely upon Jesus Christ and him alone. Why would I follow Christ? Because I've got no place else to go. There's nowhere else to go. In the words of Jesus himself, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, you finish it, and lose his own soul? What makes the persecution bearable when it comes? Verse 23. The Son of Man will return. 
The Son of Man is coming. We don't know when. It could be any time. Behold, he he stands just at the door, James tells us. Ready to, to burst into space and time and establish his kingdom. If we enter into a season of persecution, beloved, we have no idea how long it'll last, how deep it'll go. But our hope is that Christ is coming soon, and when he comes, he will put an end to that and all other wickedness. And it is our blessed hope in the re- looking to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes us steadfast. This is how the people of God have always steadied their hearts. May it be the way that you and I steady ours. Bow your heads with me, please. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you to stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.